Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Lest we forget. Stand back and stand by. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. Before there were the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, QAnon, and Donald Trump, there was Timothy McVeigh a decorated war veteran who decided he, too, didn't trust the federal government. He decided to release his anger and frustration upon over 800 innocents by bringing down the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. This largest act of domestic terror in the history of the United States took the lives of 168 souls 19 of whom were children, and injured 680 others. Was McVeigh's wanton act an inspiration for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th? I asked my guest today just that question. Stanley Goldman is a lawyer and teacher of law, and at the time of McVeigh's trial, was present in the courtroom as a legal reporter and analyst for Fox News. Welcome, Professor Goldman. Pleasure to be here, as always. Um, So, Stanley, um, uh, I think you're the first expert on a case I've ever had who hasn't actually written a book about that case. So tell us uh, your expertise, how you come by expertise on uh, the Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma bombing case. Uh, I was was at the time still a law professor, but Uh, Fox uh, had hired me as the network was coming on the air, the Fox News Channel, to be their first legal correspondent. So I'm not certain the ABA would have loved that. Uh, My dean sort of tolerated it, but I had actually two full-time jobs at the same time. I I was a full-time tenured law professor at Loyola, where I still teach, and I was a full-time correspondent for the Fox News Channel. Uh, at least during the day, I was a full-time correspondent. And at night, which at the time was a little controversial from my perspective, which was I was a legal analyst. So this was 25 years ago, because actually the McVeigh trial was in 1997. I was hired by the Fox News Channel uh, just before they went on the air um, in uh, 1996. And I had this kind of double duty during the day, assuming I wasn't in class, I'd be in front of some courtroom somewhere, some courthouse, sometimes having to fly back to teach class that very day uh, with a microphone in my hand describing what I'd just seen inside as a reporter. And then at night, when there were no trials actually going on, I would do the the routine of the nighttime shows and be an analyst describing what I'd seen and they'd ask my opinion, which seems commonplace today. But at the time, a quarter of a century ago, it was not common. You were either an analyst or you were a reporter. And it was always sort of a slightly uncomfortable balance to, to keep. But, you know, we managed to do it and now it's become the standard. You watch MSNBC or Fox News or CNN, and you see reporters who are now given analysis uh, as well as uh, just a reporting. Just the facts, and ma'am. Just the, so, no longer just the facts, the opinion as well. Now, as I remember uh, back then, the trial itself was not televised. Well, um, this was 
you know, not a trial on television because it's, it was in a federal court. The judge in Oklahoma City was originally signed the case. The defense had made a motion that the judge should disqualify himself. And the minor point that the defense raised as to why he might not be fair was his offices were blown up during the blowing up of the Oklahoma City, you know, bombing. So uh, the, the the circuit court, they appointed their top trial judge, uh, Richard Mesh, who was as good a judge on questions of evidence, which can get very complicated and involved, as any judge I've ever watched. And he immediately then, either he or the Ninth Circuit instructed him to uh, move the case out of Oklahoma City to Denver, Colorado, so they could get a, a neutral jury and wouldn't have problems selecting jurors that weren't personally involved or witnesses or known somebody who'd been injured or killed. Because remember, I think it was something, uh, and I don't mean to get the number wrong because it's so tragic, something like 168 deaths and 509 other injuries from the bombing. Um, and so the chances of finding a, a jury of 12 plus alternates and Oklahoma City, who were not in some way connected, seemed to be a very difficult proposition. So we tried the case in Denver. I spent six weeks there uh, with some breaks to come back and and teach. I spent six weeks there, often in the courtroom, often standing outside with the microphone, uh, covering the covering the trial. But it was a very speedily conducted trial. Uh, the organizer for the prosecution had done a brilliant job so that there were seemingly dozens of witnesses put on just in a matter of days. The actual trial lawyer who was doing the most of the speaking in court, uh, Herzler, I believe is his name, um, was actually not the one who'd organized it or the one who'd done the motions. The organizer is a name that may be familiar to listeners. Uh, it was a somewhat younger incarnation of Merritt Garland, who is our present attorney general. And uh, Garland was basically tasked with not only doing motions in the case, but also organizing the massive amount of information and potential witnesses that the feds had had discovered or investigated through this. And so and the trial moved as smoothly as any major trial I've ever seen through the prosecution case. There, there has been some suggestion that there may have been a billion words involved uh, in the investigation of this case. Uh, it was, I think they interviewed hundreds of people, thousands perhaps, uh, followed any number of leads to put together the case they did. And still to this day, there was a controversy about whether they went far enough as to whether, you know, the sort of the lone gunman theory of the Kennedy assassination here, that there were only two or three people maybe, uh, because uh, two, two other people ended up being convicted, one on receiving 12 years in prison. Uh, the other defendant um, who had apparently backed out just before the events, uh, or at least perhaps the jury believed it, was also sentenced, was also convicted uh, in the federal in a federal case, a separate trial than McVeigh's. They were tried separately, uh, Nichols, but uh, Nichols um, was sentenced to life without possibility of parole and then retried for the murders in an Oklahoma state court, which doesn't violate double jeopardy because state and federal are considered by way of the Supreme Court to be different sovereigns so you could be tried and convicted of the same crime in both and never be able to claim some sort of constitutional protection against it. And he was tried and the jury couldn't reach a decision on the death again. So he uh, he got life without possibility of parole, whereas McVeigh uh, was sentenced to death. And as we know, in 2001, he was executed, I believe, at that point in time, he was uh, you know, like the first federal prisoner executed since something like 1963 and was executed for the largest uh, terrorist act in the history of the United States to be unfortunately and tragically surpassed in my, in my memory servicing a mere three months later with 9-11.
but this was the biggest in in history in in the United States and the biggest even surpassing 9/11 of a domestic terror. Yes. And and I remember um you know being in the faculty lounge when the the explosions took place and over the next couple of days and the, nobody was talking about domestic terrorism. Um they were all talking about this being you know, some Islamic radical terrorist group, which is the way we were thinking at the time, even before 9-11. And then uh, the, the um, I, in, in hindsight, I, I have read reports that the, the, the FBI agent who had actually been at Waco uh, for the Branch Davidian debacle that took place when 74 people were, you know, burned to death or killed from smoke inhalation during the the uh the the government not necessarily led by the fbi apparently there was some dissension from the fbi representative of the scene as to them charging in to try to break into the advanced uh, uh the uh, the compound um which which refused to surrender they they wanted you know the, there was this, this religious cultish sect i won't go into the branch davidians but a number of people were killed and um I think the number was 74 that day and six had been killed in a in a long preceding attempt uh to invade the compound and um uh, uh mcveigh had been apparently greatly affected by that and also the head fbi agent who had been at at the branch davidian experience and apparently opposed breaking in i believe if memory serves me apparently was telling the fbi wait a minute this is not um foreign terrorists it would be too great of a coincidence because this is april 19th and april 19th is the day that we broke that that the events took place with the branch davidians uh being killed so it's 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 an anniversary marked by right-wing extremists in this country we should look for a domestic terrorist and even gave a description of he believed who would do it it would be a white male with a military background who who was a member of some sort of or at least a spouse some sort of right wing radical philosophy and it turned out when you when they actually found uh timothy mcveigh and we looked at his background he not only fit the profile in many ways he's the he's the poster child for for a description of a mass shooter although there were no guns involved here he was you know, now, was, and and again at this time there was no Facebook, there was very little internet. I don't think Al Gore really gotten it out there yet, and uh, so he went after Waco. It re that really affected him, though. I think he was disenchanted with the government for other reasons, but not no not so uh, radical. But he'd go to gun shows and hand out literature. He was at Waco. Uh, at some time uh, before the the you know the conflagration, but he was there. So if he didn't visibly witness it when it was happening, uh, he was there close enough to it that it became really personal for him. He was going to do something big, and as we just mentioned before that time and since, there's never been a big whether shooting or bombing. There hasn't been on on American soil done by an American a bigger. So he, you know, he uh, he got what he wanted. Yeah, and by the way, um, the conspiracy, you want to know about, because I, I think we should at some point before the end of this link this to potential dangers now, um, as, 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 as mentioned by uh, uh, Senator Graham the other day, uh, as to triggering events which can trigger terrorist actions. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information, There'll be riots in the streets. Uh, in terms of, you know, we've always seen a shooting of a federal, uh, you know, office uh, in response to allegedly in response to the search of Mar-a-Lago, uh, and then comments about could there be other violence if there was an indictment or a trial or a conviction um, of the former president of the United States because this might also inspire people uh you know interestingly something i don't see mentioned the federal government believed that mcveigh had originated 
with Nichols, the conspiracy on something like September 13th, 1994 that was the date they designated don't don't hold me to that but it was something like that date is when they 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 the initial the conspiracy actually began that was the that was the date which is very interesting because if memory serves me it was the exact day that the clinton anti um automatic weapon ban actually went into effect and McVeigh was, I you know, I'll use the word advisedly, a gun nut. You were right. He would go to gun shows. He was very obsessed with guns. And his his, it's like he's a poster child if you look up his biography for for a mass shooter. He was a, a small child in terms of his size, and even didn't look it. He was very skinny, and apparently the subject of a fair amount of bullying. And and uh, and then and, and then got into a love of guns. Uh, you know, maybe as a way of you know, because he couldn't fight the bullies. So, mm-hmm. you know, he had these fantasies about guns and ended up going to gun shows and ended up making money at gun shows and uh, and becoming a real, very obsessed with the idea of the government trying to take our guns away. And the government's going to really, really, the, the country's about to be taken over by by armies that are being trained. Uh, we're going to become all slaves to to the socialists. And, and these these cowards don't mind the fact that the, the government's going to take away all of our rights. Um, it, it, it really is kind of, and there's even one more thing which has only come up in the last year or two about the profile of some mass shooters. And that is this, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, incel movement, these involuntarily celibate. What McVeigh, the, the agents were apparently, if my memory serves me, unable to find any woman he'd ever had a physical relationship with, or in fact, any evidence other than his own either truth-telling or braggadocia, that he had had sexual relationships with women. So it's possible that he, in fact, was, you know, celibate, involuntarily celibate, as as seems to be an unfortunate profile of at least violent speakers what? on the Internet and people that have actually engaged in mass shootings. He and Nichols got a lot of stuff together and did a lot to put this together. There's always been this, as I said, kind of, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not making light of it but this look kind of lone gunman theory that wait a minute he's he couldn't have been alone there 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 must have been other right wingers who the government was simply either not able to bring to justice or decided to leave it alone because there was always mcveigh had 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 visited between one and four times if i recall i think they weren't weren't entirely certainly a uh, compound of these of right wingers and there was even some whether it could be confirmed or not rumor that on a visit to this compound um there had been discussions by others of you know attacking the federal government and that the the uh courthouse there in oklahoma city would be was considered a target and there there's always there's always been this thought floating around that mcveigh had gotten the idea there and it maybe had even gotten some help from there, but they were never able to prove it, so they never charged anybody. You talk about putting this thing together, the intricacy of it, uh, the amount of, of uh, uh, explosive device and fertilizer and all that that they had in this truck, and then getting the truck into the right place in the underground garage. And um, if my memory serves, uh, before he entered the garage, he lit a fuse in the the truck, winding around in the back of the truck like a three-minute fuse, and and drove it into the the garage with the the fuse burning. And and that I shoot that boy that that uh, pardon the pun blows my mind. You know to know that you're sitting on. This the, this bomb that that of course you know I don't know if he had any idea how much it was going to bring this building down, but he probably somebody had a good idea that this pl- parked where it is, it's just going to bring this building down. So we know it's not a, a firecracker, and he sets the thing just after. I, I, hard for me to even say it, even though I'm a kind of a you know I've done I've done a fair number of murder trials in my life and covered a fair number of murder cases. Uh, set to go off 
soon after parents had dropped their kids off at daycare in that building. I mean, just an amazing coldness. But yes, he like a like a uh, a suicide bomber with an escape. He sets it and then basically leaves, uh, and it goes off. So um, you you can uh, you know. And remember, he was a he was a sergeant. He had been in the military for I believe four years. He had he had wanted to be a Green Beret. He just couldn't do it after beginning training. He wasn't good enough and then left the army with an honorable discharge. And look, he could have continued his um, his appeals in this case. He's the one, if if um, if people recall, who said, no, uh, let's get it over with. Right. And 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 ended it without without because it turned out as he was as his ex as his appeals were basically ending or have just ended. The federal government admitted something that has been the bane of many uh, 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 federal prosecutors attempt to get their their case completed and and put to bed is that there was something like 4,000 pages of documents the prosecution had neglected to turn over to the defense during the course of the trial, which the, which the government admitted that they had, and that started a, theoretically a whole new round of appeals, as that is the basis of a new trial. But after losing the first or the second round of that, McVeigh said, no, let's call it off. Uh, let's just get this over with. Right. And, and he, he sort of, again, it's 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 indicated in, you know, opinion that um, that he from the beginning of being caught, uh, whether he thought he was going to get away or or water for how long that he could you know be on the run that once that was had it's like no I you know I, I mean it's not a noble suicide or something but it's, you know you have suicide by cop this is going to be suicide by court it's like no I'm not going to jail oh, yeah, I am not going to spend the rest of my life in jail uh, you know I'm not remorseful um, you know fine then uh, you know the quicker the better. Now, yeah, you- Nichols, Nichols uh, appeared, at least gave the appearance of being remorseful. He cried. And when he, he testified on his own behalf, McVeigh never testified on his own behalf. Um, and McVeigh, when he did that 60 Minutes interview with Ed Bradley uh, just before his execution, uh, still didn't show any remorse. And I, he gave, if memory serves me, the interview to Bradley only on condition that he not be asked whether, in fact, he did it or not. Because at that moment in time, he had still not yet given up the last possible appeals uh, or clemency requests, which ended up not not pursuing. Seven thousand pounds of explosives, took a nap, ate some spaghetti, and how he then drove the truck to the federal building, lit the fuse, and walked away. Minutes later, the nine-story structure was in ruins. Among the dead were 19 children. Most of them had been playing at the daycare center. Eight federal law enforcement agents. 35 employees of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. 16 employees of the Social Security Administration. And more than 80 other people who just happened to be in the building that Wednesday morning. Everyone in America saw the pictures on television, heard the news on the radio. What was your reaction when you saw those pictures? I think like everyone else, I thought it was it was a tragic event. And the children? I thought it was it was terrible that there were children in the building. You know, it, I always found it ironic that the last thing McVeigh said in court when asked if he had anything to say before sentences imposed, he quoted, of all people, Louis Brandeis, the famous U.S. Supreme Court justice, who was this leftist Jewish, uh, you know, uh, lawyer who uh, made his way to the U.S. Supreme Court as a as a great reforming jurist. And it was a quote from Brandeis about how the government is the ultimate teacher, you know, and it is by by example that we follow. And then 
Uh, and I think it was in that note or something like that that McVeigh left after his death about how, you know, what do you expect? This is what the government has shown me, you know, violence, you know, the way we've conducted, you know, the violence against our American citizens and in our foreign policy. I actually, um, I did print down the quote uh, here that I'd like to sort of uh, drop in here um, by the Justice Brandeis. Quote, our government is the potent the omnipresent teacher, for good or for ill, it teaches the whole people by its example. If the government becomes a lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for law. It invites every man to become a law unto himself. It invites anarchy. So, uh, yeah, it was a kind of a hodgepodge of of. Of philosophy, although apparently the Unabomber spoke well of his intellectual uh, abilities and explanation, so that's that's the kind of uh, company we're uh, we're treading here. Um, so tell us about uh, Stephen Jones, uh, McVeigh's uh, defense attorney. Jones was this cons- this Republican politician, and I I always thought uh, I, I didn't think much of Jones trying the case. I didn't think much of his closing argument. You know, he wasn't the best lawyer I've ever seen, but he was okay. And I think more importantly, he deserved credit for being willing to take the case on. No one wanted to take on this defense. Uh, no one wanted to be the man who defended. Timothy McVeigh at the time. And it was hard to find a lawyer to do it. And he took the case on. But there was conflict between McVeigh and Jones, we learned later. And some of it even may have leaked out during the course of the trial, if I recall. And that was that McVeigh wanted what is called a necessity defense. A necessity defense means that you are allowed to do things because a greater harm would take place if you didn't. For example, if you're uh, uh, about to be subjected to abusive behavior by other inmates in a prison in which you're serving time, you can claim the necessity defense if you escaped or attempted to escape in order to avoid it, the theory being that you can commit a lesser crime in order to avoid a greater harm taking place. And that is actually recognized uh, defense. The problem here was the judge would have never let him do it. At nowhere have I ever seen a case in which the murder of anyone, clearly even innocence included, obviously, that the murder of anyone has ever been uh, had applied to a necessity defense. You cannot take someone's life in order to save yourself what you would believe to be a greater harm. Even if someone was holding a gun to your head, put a gun in your hand, pointed the gun in your hand to the head of an innocent person and said, if you don't shoot them, I'm going to kill you. If you pull that trigger and kill that innocent person, you have no defense of necessity even though you reasonably believed you were going to be killed yourself. Because under the law, your life is of no greater value than the life of anyone else. And your shooting them is a certainty. Their shooting you is still a question mark as to whether they will in fact do it. So um, I, and McVeigh had no necessity defense. He wanted his lawyers to argue it. Uh, Jones decided it was not only a a defense they probably wouldn't be able to put on, but it, they, they had no basis for it. I mean, it was the defense that he had to do this because the government was attacking us and this and that. It was a nonsense defense. What were they putting on then during the defense part of the trial? Well, they they raised questions because nobody had actually seen McVeigh there. It wasn't much of a defense. It was sort of like there are no eyewitnesses. Um, let's, uh, we. I want to talk about what I still think to this day may be the most remarkable um, direct examination in terms of the circumstances I've ever seen in all the hundreds of trials I've either been involved in or, or witnessed. I always thought that to me, perhaps the most chilling 
and different and compelling and important testimony of that trial or almost any other I've ever seen was given by Timothy McVeigh's sister, Jennifer. I was in the courtroom when Jennifer testified. I hope I'm getting her name right. It's been so long. Uh, she had been Oh, my gosh. I, I, browbeaten would, would be an underestimation of what happened to her when she was being interrogated in, in, in you know, in, at the at the FBI headquarters and police stations. Uh, she was interrogated for about eight days and sometimes going on for eight or nine hours at a time over and over again about about her involvement in this and what she knew about her brother. And apparently her brother had she said in testimony it had you know it sent her various things that told her that there were big events coming she talked about her brother's connection and all the things he sent her about um about plans to do things although not necessarily specifics about this particular bombing um and she had after hearing about the oklahoma city bombing and hearing about her brother's arrest she destroyed a small portion of them which dealt with the i think the turner diary I think it was called um, yes. a kind of a racist, um, you know, right wing thing that was popular. She didn't destroy, but she had a lot, a lot still left. And um, to get her to testify against her her brother, which they didn't want to do, she didn't want to do. They they really did threaten her subtly and not subtly with a trial herself for treason. They had big wording of treason equals death. Uh, sentence um, and they had threatened her with a lot and uh, she'd agreed to cooperate and uh, as you know which was devastating testimony because when she testified uh, during her direct examination it was cool and calm and looking her brother in the eye and they exchanged smiles and he tranquilly and fondly looked back at her as she gave testimony, which may very well have been just enough to put him in the death chamber. And this demeanor of the two of them never changed as they made eye contact with each other as she described, obviously, his plans to engage in some kind of behavior like this, uh, telling her to watch out for certain dates, etc., or at least periods of time. Uh, it was it was chilling testimony, and the circumstances made it almost surrealistic. And then on cross-examination by one of uh, McVeigh's attorneys, she then described the circumstances under which she'd been interrogated uh, for days on end uh, for many hours by the government and finally agreed to bring forth all the information she had rather than to be prosecuted herself. And she broke down crying. And that was the one point during the trial, at least that I watched, that you saw any emotion on McVeigh's face. Uh, I'm talking about Timothy McVeigh. He was very, very upset to watch his sister uh, crying like that and to have her describe what she had gone through at the hands of the federal interrogators that finally brought her to court to tell what I'm sure the jury believed was the truth. Now, of course, you know, if you hadn't done anything yet, if he was only on trial for attempted something, if that wouldn't push him over the edge that the FBI and the government uh, should be wiped off the face of the earth, I guess that would sort of do it. Yeah, he was not, you know, I mean, he, he, if, if, if there had been if it had been a different trial and he would have gotten out, um, you know, after a period of time, that might have been another triggering triggering incident. Um, but remember, the FBI was, although I thought their tactics were unacceptable as described, but um, nonetheless, they were dealing with trying to solve the murder of 168 Americans and the injuring of over 500 others. And um, and they were, you know, they may have been looking for information as to whether others were involved, as I said to this day, my understanding is people wonder whether there are others who were at least preliminarily involved and whether perhaps McVeigh, just as a good soldier, he 
in his own mind thought that he was went to his death without revealing anybody else's name or naming names or revealing anybody else who might have you know assisted him i have no idea as i said i'm not a conspiracy uh person i think there are coincidences and things that people do on their own that sometimes we don't think is possible but uh there's always been this question mark as to whether others may have been at some point involved with these discussions uh with mcveigh and of course it was a fairly arduous task to get all this stuff together uh for just a couple of guys to do and once again nichols dropped out i think that's what saved nichols life was the fact that he had communicated to mcveigh that he didn't want to be a part of this I mean, it wasn't absolutely certain that he'd done that. Obviously, it was based on his own testimony. But um, nonetheless, I think that's what perhaps actually ended up saving him at the next two trials. Now, we um, we alluded earlier um, to the fact that that and I agree with you 100 percent that Lindsey Graham's, you know, while, uh, you know, uh, blabbermouth, big mouth um, is just encouraging. It's just wonderfully encouraging the people out there. And every turn from Mueller to Comey, to everything along, I don't want to make it all Trump. It's it's goes before Trump, uh, white supremacy and 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 uh, neo Nazis. But um, and if we white. were in a different country or in a different era, these might be leftist terrorist activities. Correct. It, Correct. It's just that at this moment in time, I'm not in any way apologizing for anything that the extreme left does, much of which I can disagree with. It's just at this moment in time, there, and it has been since McVeigh and probably even before, there is more danger of violence being triggered on the right than there is on the left from my point of view. The more organized danger is still what it was 25 years ago. And if we didn't realize it then with McVeigh, uh, we certainly should realize it today. And there's for all of these, there seems to be a tr something triggering about this. I think it was actually the 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 uh, battle at Lexington in uh, seventeen seventy five. I think that you know it's so a date in which you know, and it was referred to by uh, uh, some people who discussed McVeigh's attitude was that he was trying to be the 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 you know the Patrick Henry of uh of his day that you know uh i you know i i you know the, I, I regret that i only have one life to give for my country kind of attitude which is really weird because he renounced his american citizenship but claimed i mean i'm talking about mcveigh but right. claimed that he was doing this in order to protect the united states constitution from those who would destroy it As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, Stanley Goldman uh, has not written a book on Timothy McVeigh, but he has written a very interesting book uh, closer to his own heart. And I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, uh, include this in today's podcast. Uh, the name of the book is Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother. So, Stanley, tell us about the book. Well, uh, the book is, is in a sense, you know, I teach murder. And I also teach us, uh, you know, not only murder and uh, I teach criminal law, which is basically about 70% of the criminal law courses about murder and degrees of homicide and defenses to homicide. So it's people ask me what I teach and my answer is murder. Uh, but I, I and I also teach evidence, which is what, you know, when, when you hear somebody stand up or we hear these people talking about, well, that's hearsay. For example, at the, uh, at the uh, January 6th hearings, they say, oh, that's all hearsay. Well, it, some of it is and some of it isn't. Hearsay is a very technical term. All evidence, you know, in terms of what's admissible is or isn't technical. And I, I teach prospective lawyers that. And um, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, when when he uh, when he he got in a when he when he was nominated by Biden to be 
uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mallorca, a uh, former student of mine, wrote me a very nice email thanking me for having taught him criminal law and criminal procedure here at Loyola Law School, where I teach, um, because he he went into that as a career through the by way of the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I've had a lot of former students go into the area of criminal law, maybe slightly promoted by by my teaching. I don't know. It can always you never know what what the effects are going to have. But um, I also for about a dozen years now. I have been teaching a seminar entitled Law and Genocide. So in a sense, when I'm not teaching murder, I'm teaching mass murder. And um, I decided after I'd been teaching for the class for a while that um, perhaps I should give a more pointed, personal um, perspective on that particular mass murder of mass murderers. Uh, the Holocaust, because uh, Alejandro Mallorca, our Secretary of Homeland Security, um, actually his mother was a Romanian Jew fleeing the Nazis during World War II. Uh, she got on a ship headed for the U.S., as with almost all those ships, they weren't allowed to land by the federal, by the United States government. Uh, some of them turned back and their passengers aboard were eventually killed in the Holocaust by the Germans. But um, this one turned south and tried to dock in Havana and they let them disembark. And so Alejandro Mallorca's mother gets off and is absorbed by the Jewish community there, which is primarily Sephardic, meaning Jewish Jews of Hispanic ancestry, marries a Jewish guy named Mallorca. And some years later, they have Alejandro and Castro takes over. And Alejandro is a small boy. They flee the communists. And so I think his life story is an amazing one. In one generation, you've got his family fleeing the, the Nazis and the communists. But um, so, and that's a personal point of view. And I have a personal point of view. My mother was in Auschwitz. My mother survived the camps to be rescued in a really bizarre honestly not not that she was liberated by by you know allied troops she was actually rescued in a very little known rescue that involved other women from a death camp that was a solely women's death camp the ravensbrook death camp uh which um was only occupied by women it was the it was in many ways the largest women's prison in the world and um i decided to to talk about what it was like growing up with someone who had undergone that and and lived to tell the story and um that's what i did i i in the book i write about what it's like to be raised as the only child by a parent who'd gone through that uh and um i weave into it the story of the rather remarkable way she and the women who were with her during the entire length of the Holocaust until they were rescued in this rather unusual and unexpected uh, event um, during the as the war was still being fought, and um, I, I must say that um, you know I I, uh, I wrote it at a level not like a law professor. I wrote it what I thought would be for seventeen and eighteen year olds to to so that they could perhaps not only understand the events but also relate it to their relationships perhaps with their own parents uh although it turns out i seem to get most of my email comments about the book from 70 and 80 year olds instead of 17 and 18 year olds but um it, it is that and I, i've interestingly enough some of the young people who have contacted me about it who've read it um have been people of central american ancestry uh, their parents are from central america their parents are from asia and they write me and say that their parents had escaped you know atrocities taking place and come to america and that they so identify with with what i'm writing about being raised by someone who'd gone through this um and actually i think my biggest fan is a is a monk who actually uh uh writes reads about the holocaust and wrote me and uh and and thought that this was a very unusual book to have to have taken it from that perspective uh i i it's a autobiographical biography on my part it's a biography of my mother and it's interwoven with the events of that time um to show for example how my mother treated me as potentially at least a consequence 
of things that had happened to her. You know, I, I do not know how to ride a bike. I do not know how to swim. I do. I never rode skates because I was wrapped in bubble wrap as a child. I was, you know, the only, I was, I, I, I there were, though the Nazis had long ago been defeated, as far as my mother was concerned, they still remained a threat in the world. Danger lurked everywhere. And so I was raised like this uh, to fear all sorts of things because uh, if, if something so unexplainable and unexpected as the Holocaust could take place, committed by the most civilized and advanced country in the world, uh, it could happen anywhere at any time. Well, and, and one of the things that I'm finding is, of course, uh, I'm older. Uh, and, you know, the kids are in school now and and we're talking about critical race theory and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just concerned that, you know, with uh, Holocaust um, uh, deniers in government and in places of authority who just think it's it's a hoax. Um, it's scary. Uh, uh, you know, I I <clears throat> I made this book as tightly written as I possibly could. I had about. A book that I think could have been 450 pages long. I it's 150 pages long because I, I I wanted I didn't want people to to say okay I'm tired of reading this. I wanted them to to have to be drawn from one chapter to the next. But along with those 150 pages, I have 42 pages of endnotes, and they're not endnotes you know documenting my conversations with my mother or when my mother wouldn't let me buy a pair of skates because she was afraid they are documenting everything i've got in the book about her time during the holocaust the events that took place the rescue uh so that and in fact i remember i gave a draft of the book very early on to a friend of mine who was a successful screenwriter and he read it and he said no nah, you can't do this I mean, there are just too many people and you need to you need to be able to combine characters. You know, this would make a great novel, but you can't write it as a nonfiction. And I said that the whole point of it is that it's got to be understood as true. I'm not making up anything. So I spent the next four years rewriting the book so that it sounded like a novel, but there was nothing in it that is not factually documented exactly. Now, what I love the subtitle. Um, that again is going to intrigue people, and I'm glad we didn't go into the story, uh, which is a big part of it. As is, you know, you're growing up with your mother. It's not just about her time uh, escaping uh, the Holocaust, but the bargain that broke Adolf Hitler and saved my mother. All of which, by the I way, mean, I mean, people, come on, people read that line and they think I'm making it up. Making it up. Uh, well, you know I'm, what? Read the book. I gave the book before it was published to two of the country's leading Holocaust scholars to ask them about it. And when when they finished reading it and I and, and they gave me critiques, uh, the first question I asked them was, have I backed up that subtitle? And they both responded basically to their surprise. Absolutely. Uh, it is a absolutely completely factually documented event, which has gotten very. I mean, I've I, I've scholars have written about this event, but usually it's in a paragraph or two somewhere in the middle of a book. Nobody's ever actually dedicated a whole section of a book to it. Uh, but it's an absolutely true and amazing story. Although I still think I've been told by people that the heart of the book is, in many ways, what could be described as its heart. Um, the fact that this is the relationship that you know somebody was able to have with a child after having going th gone through this and and the effects that has and it would be true by the way for a lot of people whose parents have suffered from post traumatic stress uh and the way they they treat their children well listen um i got to go i smell my dinner uh, we are i am talking on the east coast and i know that stanley's got a uh, class coming up but in an hour or so so again i want to thank stanley goldman not only for our discussion of timothy mcveigh which i think is more uh timely now than it's ever been and also about his book uh amazon barnes and noble get it from your in fact order it from a, a local bookstore they can get it and that will help us small business or if they or if they want to listen to it there isn't the, the 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 audio company recorded books actually made me audition 
and I did audition to do the audiobook, which is an unabridged version, although no footnotes if you get the audiobook. Uh no endnotes. But um great. great. I didn't yeah. know that that you so they let you do it. They I, I had to audition. I, I, wow. I dictated six minutes in a hotel room. Wow. Um, uh, it, I was I was out of, out of the country at the time. I, I dictated it into my phone. I forwarded it to them by way of an email. Yep. Uh, they listened to it and said, yeah, we'll let you do it. Great. Well, listen, again, we'll, we'll be back again to talk about, again, you can have another book, but if not, just picking your brain about stuff is so fascinating. So once again, I want to thank author, lawyer, teacher stanley goldman thank you in addition to professor stanley goldman's book i'd also like to recommend the latest ken burns documentary the u.s and the holocaust now streaming on pbs video as far as timothy mcfay he was executed on june 11th 2001 by lethal injection. Before he is put to death, McVeigh will be permitted to make a final statement. He is planning to recite a line from a 19th century poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He is also expected to declare himself the winner in his war against America, saying the final score is 168 to 1. To my loyal listeners out there, and any new ones who are tagging along, please, until next time, take care, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. <laughs>